Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, once more into the breach, my friend, here we are in the bunker. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like it's been a while since we recorded, but it wasn't. We recorded, what did we record Thursday? Thursday. Also, so that's why. I kind of, and then yesterday I had to do this interview thing. We didn't, we didn't really record. No, we were thinking about it, but we were waiting for inspiration. Yeah. The, the muses were not no. singing to us yesterday. They were on strike with the Hollywood writers. <laughs> Uh, by the way, but one thing we did miss last week, I didn't get to do last week's apology, so I'm going to do one and a half this week. All right. First of all, I want to apologize to Canadian people. Uh, for some reason, Donald Trump, in the middle of a speech, just started attacking Canadian dairy farmers and the Canadian uh, lumber industry. Now, if any of you are up on the border and any of you happen to be dairy farmers in upstate New York, I do understand there's some odd tariffs that are going on and things like that. By the way, cheddar cheese from Canada is delicious. If any of you ever have a chance to get some Canadian cheddar cheese, very good. I've never been a huge fan of Canadian whiskey, but I just bought some rye whiskeys from Crown Royale rye. So that might be... Was that... Was it, well, have you had any yet? No. Okay. Well, well, we'll get to you on that. So we'll see, Yeah, but we'll see. Because you know what I mean? Like Canadian whiskey, it's got a sweeter... Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the in general. It's not my favorite, but and you know that we human beings are the only species that, as adults, drink the milk of another mammal. Um, you know, I never drink thought milk of, at all. You know, I, and then and then I never thought of that, but that does. Yes, I'm keeping my eye on things. I mean, there's these are things that in in these troubled times that were in sometimes get overlooked. Right, maybe that's why. Uh, finally, because uh, because many. People of Asian origin are lactose intolerant. So maybe just our genetics is getting catching up to us here in, in the West and saying, hey, what are you doing? And you know what you can't make without milk? What? Beautiful chocolate cake. I mean, just <laughs> big, the kind the president, she just, you can tell he's enjoying it. Beautiful chocolate cake. Well, yes. And so I have a feeling you're probably going to hear that in a couple more episodes because... It's such a good impression that you do. But uh, who I really want to apologize this week is to uh, the people of the Philippines, um, uh, <laughs> you know, particularly uh, folks who ha- have had family members killed by the current president of uh, the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. Is that how you pronounce it? Duterte, something like that. And at any rate, uh, he is a cold-blooded murderer. And uh, President Trump on his own decided to call him up and give him some praise and Apparently, he's coming over. We've invited him over to, to be with us. And, uh, yeah, so he... Uh, is he a, technically a warm-blooded murderer? If you're a reptile, you'd be a cold-blooded. Oh, uh, okay. Or is, right. that an, is that saying that you're like a reptile? You have no it could, human... It could be a reptile. But that, you know, so also... So I want to apologize to all you reptiles out there. I don't mean to associate you <laughs> with a mass murderer, all right? Uh, you kill because that's just how... You, what you do, you do for food and protection. So, again, uh, Canadians... The Philipp- people of the Philippines. Mary, we have so much to apologize to the people of the Philippines that like we could spend a whole episode on that. Uh, and most of you don't know that history. But um, 
and also reptiles. So that would be our. Th- so that would be one full apology and two half apologies today. I would like to receive an apology. I probably won't from Howard Stern for playing. He was playing clips from Bill O'Reilly's podcast and then his new podcast, and then he played clips from a novel he wrote and an erotic <laughs> love scene. I, I I'm psychically damaged. Like I can't. I, if I could just wipe something off my hard drive, like I it I, it would be that. I mean, it's pretty disturbing. So now, how many people in our listeners are are going to go look for it? So you unwittingly. No, but we have highly moral and holiness kind of listeners. So I'm sure nobody's looking it up right now, even as we it is, speak. It is so – oh, gosh. I mean, it's just like – like if you're, if you're struggling with some manner of sexual temptation and you feel you need restraint, this is far better than a cold shower. I mean this is – this will really – This is like – this is electric – like electric shock therapy worse. to your psyche. Yeah. yeah, worse. All right. Well – the idea, just the phrase, Bill O'Reilly and erotic literature is enough to make me become a Franciscan. So well, there you go. I, anyway. I like it. Uh, today's episode uh, is inspired by uh, a person who often inspires us, Dan Carlin. Again, um, one of the most helpful thinkers out there, a person who truly, we've said it before, truly is as unbiased as you can be, and uh, his history stuff is amazing. So his heart. Well, really, I don't even want to say because he would acknowledge he has his own uh, predispositions, but he's they're so non ideological. Like I mean, because okay. his his own beliefs are so difficult to map right on any kind of ideological S- map that like he's just so. And again, I think was it Henry James uh, T. S. Eliot said of him that he had. A mind that was so sharp that no idea could penetrate him. But that he meant ideology. Yes, like, yes, yeah, yeah. And that's that's Dan Carlin. I mean, really, he he is so he's he's so fair minded and, right. and a true open mind. Yeah, that's that's a better way to say. It. And you know, even he constantly is telling reminding us of what his biases are. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's what makes it really it's a, it's an open book kind of thinking. But he put out uh, he has two podcasts, Hardcore History, which is those of us who are history buffs, it's just it's informative and entertaining at the same way. And uh, secondly, he does a, a periodical one called Common Sense. And he released one on uh, Sunday. And it was around a variety of topics. Uh, I actually think that it was really helpful for me to think of, he says, Putin's kind of like a mafia boss. boss, And Trump is a, a textbook narcissist. Yeah, narcissist. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's what you got. Those are the people who have their hands on uh, on the nuclear weapons. Again, Maybe Angela Merkel, as she is the leader of the free world, uh, the premier of China seems to be the sane one of the yeah, major yeah. nuclear powers. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting too because he said, you know, uh, you know, as Russian leaders go, Putin's like a B minus. <laughs> yeah, he, and he made his case for like history, like starting with the czars. <laughs> so we go czar, Lenin, Stalin. You know, obviously I pick Khrushchev uh, over him. Uh, yeah, he made a very interesting <laughs> case. Like he, no, he, 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 it was very. Uh, the, the other thing, and this actually ties into the thing that we're going to talk about today. One of the things he consistently does is put yourself in the position of the Russians or put yourself in the positions of the North Koreans when you're talking about an international issue. Uh, for instance, he reminds us that the nuclear or the missile strike on Syria, which, there, you know, there's some suspicion whether that even happened. But it was, we all, most of us, and my natural, my first reaction was it's about time we did something to those bastards. But then... It's easy to forget that's a sovereign country, and there's there's a thing, there's a reason we have law, uh, the rule of law, and international law, and that should not have happened without any kind of authorization from either the United Nations or at least from our own Congress. And and yet we 
have gotten extremely sloppy on these issues, and it's a very dangerous thing. Um, but one of the things he was talking about in, in his whole kind of a potpourri, potpourri of, of ideas. Before we move on, can I just say the point he made there is that missile strikes are the new normal. And so we don't even think of that as right. an act of war anymore. We just think of it as a police action. And then we've got these other kind of ideas where basically if there's a group of non-state actors like right. ISIS or something or the Taliban – and, you know, we kind of work out something, a friendly agreement with it. We, we can just invade, we can just do military action, like dropping that, you know, mother of all bombs. Like these are, these are things that now we don't really, the American public doesn't consider that an act of war and doesn't consider it Congress's job to authorize warfare. So, just, it, we, so we've gone down the slide. Yeah, like the drone strikes in Yemen. Right, right. Yeah. That's just the new normal. And the fact is, for instance, the week after that we dropped the bomb on Afghanistan to kill uh, I think we were going after uh, ISIS there. The Taliban killed 100 uh, Afghani soldiers, the ones you know that we have trained and things like that. They didn't have enough caskets to do the funerals. Um, so, again, the Afghan war is being lost, by the way. All that we've put in there, all the money, all the lives that were lost there, that, were, that, battle, that war is being lost. Last year, there were more Afghan soldiers killed. The, the, the soldiers that we've put up there, you know, the ones that we consider the good guys, were killed than all the American soldiers combined over the, all the years we've been there. So that is a – but again, it's out of sight, out of mind, mother of all bombs. Uh, even You, know, you, those, don't, re, you don't report as many – you know, because we use contractors. So like the – so the, the force estimate depletion stuff, and it doesn't get – like there's so many ways in which we cover up absolutely. the effects of, of war. And yeah, the fact is now, and I have to admit, I mean, I, I liked President Obama, uh, and, um, but the idea, you know, all right, he had a Thursday meeting where he decided who was on the kill list. Somebody said, I heard it on Talk Radio once, they said, <laughs> he talks like a comparative religion professor and acts like a Blackwater executive sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the fact is, you know, we've all, and I mean, again, this is a new kind of war and 9-11, I mean, the stuff that we kind of, Coming out of the you know, all the, uh, gosh, was it the church report years ago about all the, uh, you know, we, the things that we've kind of repented of in terms of the insurgent stuff we did in South, you know, Central America and, and kind of the catharsis that we went through in the 70s. Say, oh man, we shouldn't be doing that stuff. Well, you know, then we begin with the Contra stuff in the 80s, but then since 9 11, I mean, it's, we've become way too casual of stuff that really goes against our, uh, our, core values and no one stops and asks the larger question which well no people do but we ignore it is this actually doing any good or is it making things worse and i think one can argue as we continue to be in the longest wars of our national history that um for every terrorist we kill we probably create five that may be simplistic but there's a lot of data that would support that but what we wanted to talk about is something closer to home. And, you know, Dan Carlin has consistently over the years said the thing that he's most concerned about in our society is the corruption of government and both the legal and illegal corruption, the way that money's in politics, the way that certain interest groups prevent things from happening for the good of people, uh, the way that, um, you know, the, the money that's involved in election, the obligations, it's always, there's always been, you know, there's always been, you know, <laughs> corruption. A, he did a great thing, like two episodes ago. He says, you know, my grandmother was great at raising money. She was just great at fundraising. He's like, basically, if you're trying to get an either party 
it, you know, it, it, in the entry level government, mayor, city council, their first question is, how are you at fundraising? So by the time you get all the way up to Congress and you should be authorizing missile strikes, you're really, he's like, you're really more suited to what my grandmother used to do for the Rotary Club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, right. that is the money in politics thing. It, it does, like, I mean, it does make for a sort of skill set that might not suit itself well to governing. Yeah, and I think there's always been corruption in money politics, but I, um, um, Senator Mark Hadfield's a legislative assistant. I knew him. And Mark Hadfield, a late senator from Oregon, um, a person was kind of aligned himself with progressive evangelicals, if somebody may remember him. But he told, his legislative assistant told this story of that back when Sam Rayburn was, I guess, Speaker of the House. What you would do, you'd come into his office and said, uh, what do you need? He'd say, what do you need? And the person said, well, I'm going to need, you know, the dollars would be so much smaller right now. I need this much to be reelected. He'd open up his desk, right there in his desk, would be a wad of cash. He'd hand it to him and say, okay, we're just going to remember, kind of like the Godfather, but a nicer version of it. <laughs> I, I may need a favor someday. Remember us when we have to vote. Now, again, that was illegal. It shouldn't have happened. But where was the loci of power? It was Sam Rayburn. It was within the government. It was not with some interest group or the Koch brothers or whoever, you know, some of these, you know, these, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, suddenly, have you noticed the change that we get political commercials all year round now? I mean, on the on your morning news programs, you get political commercials and they're nice and they have nice, happy looking people going on there. But we are constantly being bombarded with the kind of thing we used to just get during election years. And because of all these kind of uh, packs and different kinds of groups that are trying to influence the way we think. And they treat them like infomercials, uh, but they really are propaganda. And uh, anyway, so corruption has always been there. But what he has said is he's no longer – his greatest fear for our society is no longer political corruption. He thinks the – what he used the word hate that exists between uh, – the growing hate between different groups in this country um, – to him is one of to him is one of the greatest problems facing our society. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it was really interesting. There was a an op ed piece today in the New York Times. I think it was today that is the the title of which is open to the opinion page here is the collapse of American identity. It's by Robert P. Jones, who is the head of the PP. R.I., Public Religion Research Institute. We've actually talked about their polls before. Yeah, we have. Uh, yeah. They, they, do, they do quite good polling work. And he begins talking about how a, a Brit, when G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, visited the United States for the first time, he remarked that America was a nation with the soul of a church. And he says Chesterton wasn't referring to the nation's religiosity, but to its formation around a set of core political beliefs enshrined in founding sacred texts like the Declaration of Independence. And he noted that the United States, unlike other European countries, did not rely on ethnic kinship, cultural character, national type for a shared identity. The profoundness of the American experiment, he argued, was that it aspired to create a home out of vagabonds and a nation out of exiles, united by voluntary assent to commonly held political beliefs. And that is at the heart of the American experiment. I mean, unlike, a, say, like Italy or France or other modern European democracies, there's not this pre-modern European legacy that unites Italians or French. That right. then, then you have enlightenment kind of reformulation of civic values. So we kind of start with the enlightenment civic values. And I think Dan Carlin is worried that that's eroding, that we're, yeah. we're getting more tribal right. than we've been since the Civil War. Yeah, and I think, for instance... Which is Andrew Jackson. Jackson could have figured it out. I don't know why... The Civil War needed to happen. Andrew Jackson, who people say was very much like a campaign, very much like my own. 
Yeah, no. Do you think I this is my theory. I think he's got I mean, I think Trump has a mental disorder. I think he actually learned American history at one point in his life. He may have not been paying attention, hasn't used it, but uh I'm sure most of you now have heard about that quote that he he kind of implied that Andrew Jackson, if they, we had let him, he would have negotiated us away from the Civil War. Great negotiator. Great yeah, negotiator. Great. The fact that he was dead how many years before the Civil War, something like 18 years or something like that, could have been a problem. The fact that he was a slave owner might have also played into the problem. Although yeah, here he, did he, I think he may have been one of those people that freed his slaves when he died. So, so there we go. That gives him a pass, right? <laughs> there you go. But um, for instance, I mean, uh, you couldn't have a greater contrast like Saturday night. You've got a campaign-style rally rally in Harrisburg, which in Pennsylvania, for those of you who don't know your geography, that would be the Alabama part of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and it was a mostly full— Go Tide. Roll Tide. <laughs> it was a mostly full auditorium. And, you know, while you have your annual White House press dinner, which is, you know, kind of—it's one of those things where— it, regardless of where people are politically, it kind of represents everybody coming in and making fun of each other. I mean, and by the way, lest we offend our Alabama listeners, for which we have a number, I think actually, uh, that's the James Carville quote that when he was his Democratic political strategist breaking down Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania electoral strategy, he said, you know, Pennsylvania is Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between. Do we have any visit? Do we have any listeners in Mississippi? I, I we might oh, okay, but we have more in Alabama. We could yeah. say that that's the Mississippi part. Of but it. but really, what he means is it's it's much more rural and 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 votes like a red state. We could call it the West Virginia part of Pennsylvania, right. I mean, that's which why is actually more accurate. That's why Pennsylvania they call it a purple state because the population centers are on the east and western edges of the state, and they tend to vote Democratic. But the rest of the state tends to vote more like a red state. Yeah, and I remind everybody, I was born in West Virginia, and I moved to South Central Pennsylvania, so I. Uh, I spent all my formative years in that in that zone. Yeah, but um, you have that rally going on in Harrisburg, which is which, and uh, you know, I just listen to excerpts of it. Uh, and then you have the kind of Washington establishment liberal. Let's make fun of everybody, including ourselves. Which throughout the years, I mean, uh, like George W. Bush is a great example of someone who, and, and Ronald Reagan as well who had uh, the ability to kind of laugh at themselves. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that Trump refused to go to it, again, it's it has no, I mean, well, no, I, I'm gonna, I was smart to say that. The, he the, did say it throughout, look, we're having a great time, and the people in D.C. are in a boring, boring meeting, involved, but next year, maybe I'll go. Next year, and then it will be a lot of fun. If, I, if Trump goes, it's so funny, it's great. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, again, um, yeah, but the problem is not... Inherently, that uh, those of us who don't like Trump think, you know, he's the biggest disaster in history of the republic, one of the biggest ones. It's that that trickles down to Trump supporters. And the same thing is true. I mean, you and I have occasionally, uh, for some reason, I get more of the uh, hate mail than you get for whatever, for whatever reason. That's because... Uh you're more serious than I am. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't why. know. Okay. I don't yeah. know why. We, uh, maybe you have a theory why Scott and I tend to agree almost we both, we did, point we by point politically. We both tend to be left of center politically. Right, yes. right. But I'm the one that gets the hate mail. He, Billy, it's like almost <laughs> exclusively. It's, it, if it's a political critique, it's almost exclusively. It could, built. but there is a pattern in my life for that. So that's not a new phenomenon. Yeah, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Yeah, but at any rate, but, you know, getting, you know, Using the terms uh, 
libertard or, you know, the phrase that's being thrown out there, you know, liberalism must be a disease and things like that. And then the reverse categorizing, um, you know, negatively categorizing really uh, people that I grew up with, you know, in terms of, you know, their, you know, whatever all the negative terms used to against people are more traditional, more conservative. And the problem is exactly what uh, the you know what we what you read the Chesterton quote and what Dan Carlin is afraid we're 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 at risk at um, we're at risk at at, at severely damaged that matter of fact I saw a picture where it says who would win the, who would win the next civil war and it had a, you know a southern guy with all his guns and then they had a pro a male protester in a dress you know and and the, <laughs> the not, the not so subtle message there is. Not only a kind of resurgent Southern pride, but also a reinforcing of stereotypes there that I don't think helps us as a culture at all. Matter of fact, it's a very dangerous situation. I would, my concerns are the similar of Dan Carlin. And we've talked in previous podcasts that Christians are not helping. Uh, we have in the past have been some of the, some of the glue in spite of what's going on division wise. And, and increasingly our religious communities are reflecting our political ghettos. Yeah, this is interesting in this New York Times piece that, that like Americans overall, large majorities of Democrats believe minority groups such as African-Americans, immigrants, Muslims, and gay and transgender people face a lot of discrimination in the country. Only about one in five Democrats say that the majority groups such as Christians or whites face a lot of discrimination. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, are much less likely than Democrats to believe any minority group faces a lot of discrimination. And they believe Christian and white Christians and whites face roughly as much discrimination as immigrants, Muslim and gay and transgender people. Moreover, only 27% of Republicans say blacks experience a lot of discrimination, while 43% say whites do, and 48% say the same as Christians, say it's the same of Christians. So, I mean, that, that's just like one snapshot. I mean, you could look at lots of other issues, but that's just, they are, you look at like two, the political parties in the, in the blue and red states, Two really alternative views of what it's like to be a minority group in America. And, and that's just when you have such divergent accounts of reality, it, it's hard to come together in any kind of reasoned civil discourse because yeah. you just don't trust. You know, it's interesting, too. I listened to the, the 538 uh, podcast that uh, Nate Silver, the guy who does all the great like number predictions and stuff. Very good. Um, every week they start with Good, good use or bad use of polling. It's great. But they were talking about how it's interesting is scientists, because they were talking about the science protesters. Now, scientists generally don't protest as a group like that. Right. They're saying that, interestingly, this is one issue. Republicans and Democrats roughly trust scientists the same. Democrats maybe a little more, but not right. that much more. And scientists are one of the most respected right. professions in the country. But climate change uh, for people like that voted for Hillary Clinton, it was usually somewhere in their top five. Trump voters, it usually wasn't anywhere on their register, like in their top 15. So it's, it's just interesting how, how even on an issue like where there is consensus about the, the trustworthiness of science, there's not consensus about the fruits of, of, of their labor. Right, no. And I think part of that's, uh, I, I actually listened to someone, I guess on, I guess it was on NPR talking about how do your views change? And part of it's how your views are shaped and you're strongly influenced by your parents, what you hear and what you listen to. You know, we've talked before, we've used the statistic that, uh, in the 1950s, whether you went to church or not, you was no indicator of who you were going to vote for. Yeah. And you're yeah. about to do an interview. Uh, and I'll be interested to hear more about that, about the, the Democratic Party's problem 
with religion. And, and I'll have to be honest, I'm, I mean, I've been a lifelong Democrat, but there have been times where I've come close to just switching to independent because of certain issues um, that there was not an openness about that I thought uh, really, you know, it's kind of what we've talked about before, liberalism, you know, the problem, the blind spots of liberalism, uh, they're open-minded and inclusive as long as your views don't disagree with theirs. Yeah, she, it's interesting. Emma Green, this woman who I'm going to interview this afternoon, she brought to my attention in some of her work, like one in five Democrats identify as pro-life. No, there's nowhere near anything like 20% of Democratic politicians that would identify. There's like three, pro, you know, there's, no, no. there's like a handful of, of no, pro-life like, Democratic politicians. Fact, yeah, my, and one of the things that almost made me change my party uh, allegiance was when uh, Governor Casey, uh, late Governor Casey's his son uh, is now a senator, uh, but he was not invited to speak at it. He was the sitting governor of the, you know, the largest state any Democrat governors uh, was part of. And he was not invited to, I can't remember which Democratic convention it was because he's, he's a, he's a, you know, a social justice Catholic, but a devout Catholic. So he was anti, he was anti a lot of stuff that liberals would agree with, but he was, he was against abortion. He was consistent with his faith. And because that was a litmus test, and for some places it's a litmus test even now in the Democratic Party. And that doesn't help us. The lack of diversity in our political parties uh, does not help us. The lack of diversity in our religious communities. Um, you know, it's funny when you were talking earlier. I don't, one of the, I think one of the greatest American uh, war novels ever written was The Naked and the Dead by Norman Mailer. Uh, probably many of you haven't even read that. It's about World War II. And again, it's, it's, it's contrived, but you look it at it. It sounds like a zombie porn. <laughs> the uh, Naked and the Dead. <laughs> right. It's a, it's really, it's a great, and it's a great social commentary on what, you know, in some levels, if you go back and read that book, Norma Mailer already anticipates a little bit of the breakdown of the diversity. I mean, there's this kind of a symbolism in the in the book. But the platoon, if you look at the platoon that's kind of the center of the book, uh, it's across all the spectrums of American society, every religion, every education. You know, there's con there's a communist, you know, uh, you know, a 1920s, 30 communist in it. There's, you know, the you know, the sociopath. There's all kinds of different groups represented in it. And first of all, our military would hardly be rep recognized in, in, as it is now because of, you know, for a number of things, primarily because it's a uh, all-volunteer army and um, and that's taken a particular cultural move because of that. But I do think that um, uh, the fact that this is going on, the fact that we've become kind of casual about our demonizing people that disagree with us. Um, and the fact that to the level of vitriol that it's gotten to, and we have a president who fans the flames of this division because it, it serves him politically. Yeah. 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 Um, I think those things combined um, do remind me, and he, Dan Carlin mentions this, but I've thought about this before. Uh, this feels like the kind of things that led to the collapse of the Roman Republic, which, you know, again, there's so many differences. But in terms of historical precedent, you know, we don't have a lot for who we are. And uh, the fact that politics were so divisive. Yeah, yeah. And, and this you, is you a great should, point yeah. in the Repo Roman Republic that the people were just relieved when politics was taken out of the hand of the people and handed to the strong yeah. man. And I think the there are realities on the ground and things could get worse. But that certainly would be a solution that would make to me that people, as long as we have our uh, Netflix and our conveniences and our Apple devices and good wine and coffee, we may 
be happy to hand stuff over to a strong man and that or strong woman. And that 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 chills my soul, actually. It's really interesting, this article in the New York Times about the collapse of American identity. The author says that, you know, what's different is that now than the Civil War times or the early 20th century with mass immigration and changes is that white, the white Christian sort of majority was making room for other people at the table, not fearing they'd have to fight for their own seat at the table. And he talks about that's the challenge in this new partisan realignment. He says, the temptation for the Republican Party, especially with Donald Trump in the White House, is to double down on a form of white Christian nationalism, which treats racial and religious identity as tribal markers and defends a shrinking demographic with increasingly autocratic assertions of power. For its part, the Democratic Party is contending with the difficulties of organizing its more diverse coalition while facing its own tribal temptations to embrace an identity politics that has room to celebrate every group except whites who strongly identify as Christian. <laughs> if this realignment continues, left out of this opposition will be a significant number of whites who are both wary of white Christian nationalism and weary of feeling discounted in the context of identity politics. This end is not inevitable, he says, though. But if we are, are to continue to make one out of many, leaders of both parties will have to step back from the reactivity of all of, of the present and take up the more arduous task of weaving a new national narrative in which all Americans can see themselves. And I would commend to you all, regardless of your political or religious position, reread Lincoln's second inaugural address and realize that he's talking to all of us, not just the people we disagree with. Yes, and Augustine, book 19, The City of God Wouldn't Hurt, and the book of Hebrews, which reminds us that we seek a city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. I crossed the green mountain I slept by the stream Heaven blazing in my head I, I dreamt a monstrous dream Something came up Out of the sea Swept through the land of The rich and I look into the eyes Of my merciful friend And then I ask myself Is this the end? Memories linger Sad yet sweet And I think of The souls in Heaven who will meet Altars are burning With flames falling wide The foe has crossed over from the other side They tip their caps From the top of the hill You can feel them come More brief blood to spill Along the dim Atlantic line 
the rapids land Lies for miles behind The lights coming forward And the streets are broad All must yield To the avenging God 